Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 12, a Lentil Express edition. And this contains some new segments that are going to feature in most of our episodes to come. Uh, We'll take you through them, but first, happy Earth Day. Yes, happy Earth Day, everyone. This is a day where countries around the world work together to drive some meaningful action for our planet. So hopefully we can all get behind this in a big way this year. Now, we do note that by the time we publish this episode, we're well past it. So we are recording this today, Thursday, the 22nd of April. But that doesn't matter because really it should be Earth Day every day. So to kick off, we're super excited to announce that we are now a partner to a global entity called 50 by 40. Yeah, that's right, Ben. So 50 by 40, for anyone who's not aware, is a coalition of organisations that are dedicated to cutting the production and consumption of industrial animal products around the world by 50% by 2040. And that's for the earth, the climate and people. And they're bringing together a really wide range of expertise from various partners. So we're thrilled to be a part of that network now. Yeah, and they actually call themselves, they use the term collective impact organization. So, yeah, we're really excited to be a part of that and um, one of a handful from Australia, but definitely the only New Zealand representative on there. So super excited to be leading the charge from this part of the world. Right. So on to our new segments, uh, which are listener Q&A's. Updates from our partners, as well as discussions of any recently published research. So first off the rank, listener Q&As. This is something that if you have any questions that relate to nutrition or movement, training, etc., then message us through our social media accounts or our website. We'll do our research and then attempt to answer them on the following Express show, which will also now feature a little more regularly. So we've already received two questions. Uh, Emma, do you want to take the first one away? So the question was how to maximize iron and zinc absorption on a whole food plant-based diet and what to do about oxalates which hinder iron absorption. So that's a really great question and a common concern. So important to unpack in a little bit of detail here, I think. So iron deficiency is actually the most common nutrient deficiency in the world. So for everyone, regardless of diet, it's really important not to be too blasé here. So a little bit of nutrition know-how is important. But I want to make it crystal clear that well-planned plant-based diets place you at no greater risk of iron deficiency than a diet that contains meat. Okay. So the iron found in plants is only non-heme iron. Whereas in most animal products, you get a little bit of non-heme iron, but also a sizable chunk of heme iron. And you've probably all heard that line that heme iron is absorbed more readily than plant-based iron. And that can be true because plant-based iron needs to go through an extra reduction step in the gut before it's absorbed. But the difference in absorption can really be quite minimal with just a few little tweaks. So there are a few foods that hinder the absorption of plant-based iron, but there's also some that can boost it as well. So adding vitamin C, for example, it greatly increases iron absorption. I've seen some studies state by up to 12-fold 
Um, so that's a really huge benefit for adding, you know, some tomato to your lentil curries or some red capsicum to your tofu stir fries or a citrus dressing to your salad, that kind of thing. Other helpful nutrition tweaks include adding beta-carotene rich foods to your iron rich meals. That can increase absorption by about 65%. So learning to love your carrots is a good thing. And also the allium family. So that's your onion and garlic. Add some of those to your bean dishes. You'll get a boost by about 73% and you get some benefits from adding them to your grain dishes as well. So lots of vitamin C, your beta-carotene rich foods and then your allium family. Add them in regularly. There's some inhibitors to be aware of as well. So the big ones here are tea and coffee. Tea can reduce absorption of iron massively, up to about 70%. And it's actually the tannins, so the polyphenols in the tea and the coffee that have that inhibition effect. So swapping to decaf, for example, isn't a super helpful strategy there. But because it is the polyphenols, that also means that some of your herbal teas will block iron absorption as well. So not as much as black tea, but that does mean it's not just a case of swapping to green tea or cocoa with your meals. It's actually better to move that cuppa away from your meals completely. Um, so other things that can inhibit iron absorption include calcium. Um, not, not greatly, but it is enough to just be aware of if you're having a meal, maybe just ease up on the calcium fortified products like your plant-based milks. Um, if your iron is already a bit marginal. And then also phytates can reduce absorption as well. So phytates are found in a lot of plant foods. But again, going back to that good old vitamin C, adding that into your meal will largely help overcome these effects. So if you're really worried about the phytates, you can also consider prepping it in a way that reduces that. So soaking um, you know, your legumes and your grains before cooking, Sprouting as well reduces a fair bit of phytates as well as fermenting. Um, so think sourdough bread, for example, instead of your normal bread. Generally, though, to be honest, I'm not too concerned about phytates. Um, interestingly, those who eat phytate-containing foods really regularly actually show adaptations in their microbiome to compensate for this and still be able to absorb good amounts of minerals. And phytates, of course, they have their own health benefits that they add into the equation. Some studies have even shown that they exert anti-cancer effects. They can assist with lowering blood glucose levels and lipids as well. Um, very similar story with zinc. So phytates, again, they can inhibit absorption of zinc, but adding in the garlic and the onions to your meals will help you absorb up to twice the amount of zinc, which is great. Dietary protein can increase the bioavailability of zinc as well. So include your legumes, include your soy products, your leafy greens, your nuts and your seeds in addition to your whole grains. So those good sources of plant proteins are really important. Um, and now, so to the oxalates specifically in the question, um, it was asked about oxalates and iron absorption. So lots of people are actually quite fearful of oxalates inhibiting iron absorption. That piece of advice seems to be all over the internet on websites and blogs, but it's not really supported that much by the scientific literature. We've had a couple of really well-designed studies 
looking into this and they've shown that oxalic acid, so the oxalates, they don't appear to influence iron uptake all that much. So my main concern with oxalates isn't actually the iron, it's calcium absorption. And that's why I'm always recommending a good variety of food and with your leafy greens especially, not just going for spinach all the time, which a few plant-based eaters can fall into that trap, but rotating through your greens, including your low oxalate options as well. So things like kale and bok choy. Okay, so if I was to distill all of this info down and just to a, a few key steps, it would be number one, eat foods that are rich in iron and zinc. So you need that in your meal in the first place. Number two, to, to ensure that happens, just make sure you're getting a good variety of foods from all of your core food groups. So your fruits, your veggies, your legumes, your whole grains, your nuts and your seeds. Number three, we want to avoid those inhibitors at mealtime. So move your tea and coffee away from meals. Um, make sure you're not having calcium supplements or calcium fortified products in large amounts at those meals if your iron levels are already marginal. Um, number four, boosting your absorption. So those little tricks, including vitamin C rich foods, foods from your allium family and your beta carotene rich foods as well. Number five, if you're still really concerned, think about the ways you can actually prepare foods that reduce the phytates. But number six, really important here, don't actually be too obsessed about this. Don't get too reductionist in your approach. Uh, but that being said, if you have been tested as anemic, supplementation may actually be warranted here as it does take a reasonable amount of time to boost levels up through diet alone. So if that is the case for you, it's best to speak to your doctor or dietitian for more personalized advice. But that's my little tips and tricks in a nutshell about how to maximize your absorption of iron and zinc and don't stress too much about the oxalates in, in regards to iron absorption because it doesn't actually have that much of an effect. And Ben, I believe we had a movement-related question for you to answer. That's right, Emma. So we have received a question from a regular listener, Jez, and um, his question reads, I have had shin splints come and go over the years without really bothering me for more than a day or two. But recently I got them again and they are taking time to disappear. Is there anything I can do or is the answer just rest? Is there much I can do to prevent them? And is age a factor? I think you've pretty much answered it to start with, um, you know, do you need to take time? So first and foremost, I just want to say uh, the best response is generally go see a physiotherapist. Let them assess and let them make a proper diagnosis on what the issue is and what's causing them and most importantly, how to best manage them. Generally, shin splints is inflammation um, of muscles, tendons, bone tissue around your tibia, which is your lower leg bone. Um, it is a very common overuse injury amongst runners, and generally it comes from overloading. So whether you're building mileage too quickly or perhaps even building intensity too quickly. So you're doing a lot of speed work, perhaps you've never done track work, and straight away you're doing track work regularly, or you're training for half marathon, but you've only been cruising along 5Ks at a time and straight away you're ramping up mileage. So generally, like I said, inflammation of 
those parts of the body that need time to adjust to a new load. So you've got to be careful. You need patience. You need a good thorough training plan to ensure that you minimize the risk of injury. It can sometimes come from a little bit of poor biomechanical issues. So whether it's your run form, perhaps your glutes not activating. So that's where a lot of the rehab work comes in as well to make sure that your run form is is good. And yes, shoes as well, whether they're fitting poorly or perhaps you've had them a little bit too long. So the cushioning has uh, worn out. So whilst you have them, my recommendation is back off the running completely. Uh, So undertake non-load bearing training like swimming and biking. Uh, Like I said, see a physio so that you can put a plan together to slowly reload uh, through walking uh, but really you know you just need to gauge I guess along your pain threshold in terms of out of 10 where it's at and how much you can continue to to load up but shin splints is something that you shouldn't be uh, suffering from in terms of when you're training they should be gone so get rid of it treat it um, take the time to do it and then just reload carefully so Yeah, wish you well, Jez, and hope you get back uh, running as soon as possible. Brilliant. Well, thank you, everyone that's sending questions. Please continue sending them in if you'd like us to answer them on the show. Um, And just before we wrap up, we thought we'd let you know about a couple of upcoming events that you might be interested in. So firstly, one for Doctors for Nutrition. They're hosting a plant-based cooking class. Um, If you're listening to this the day we air this, which is Monday, it is literally tomorrow. So Tuesday, the 27th of April is the cooking class. It's a virtual one. So please head on over to their website and register ASAP if you're listening to this on Monday. It's going to feature Chef Adam Guthrie and Dr. Andrew Little. Um, And this is kind of launching their um, new recipe range into the world. Um, DFN have been working really hard behind the scenes on this and all all of the recipes featured had to meet strict nutrition guidelines. So you'll know that if you are following a whole food plant-based diet and you're trying to, uh, you know, manage or put into remission a particular condition, these will all be quite safe for you to choose from. So Tuesday the 27th, kicking everything off at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. So head to their website and register. And then I believe you've got one to talk about as well. I do. So we'll put the link as well in our show notes for that, as well as for evidence-based eating uh, New Zealand. So they are soon to kick off a series of four health-focused public lectures highlighting the power of plant-based whole foods to restore health to all New Zealanders. So this is in New Zealand. Um, The first lineup is in Christchurch, Saturday, the 22nd of May. Uh, then that's followed by Dunedin, uh, then Auckland, which features Professor Boyd Swinburne, who we've had on the show very recently, and lastly in Wellington in October, uh, which features past uh, guests of the show, Dr. Mike Joy and Dr. Luke Wilson. So a stellar lineup. Uh, we, yeah, we'll probably have a little bit more to announce on this in the near future, but right now, uh, if you want to book your spot, depending where you are in New Zealand, then certainly uh, click on the link that we'll have in the show notes and it'll take you there. So to finish off, we'll revert back to our Earth Day theme topic. Um, and this is following on from a video we posted on Facebook about two months ago. Um, and we'll certainly repost it this coming week. Now, it was in regards to a uh 
paper that was published on the 4th of January earlier this year titled Greater Committed Warming After Accounting for the Pattern Effect. Emma, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so to set the scene for this, the Paris Climate Agreement aims to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius with the ideal being 1.5 degrees. This is what's needed to avoid disastrous impacts from a warming climate. Given that the Earth has already warmed on average a bit over 1 degree Celsius, we can now only allow less than 1 extra degree of future warming. But here's the really important part. We need to consider warming from emissions that have already occurred. So that's what's known as committed warming. So global warming can be a slow process to realise the full extent. It's kind of like when the bill's in the mail after you've had a service provided, so the work gets done, but the hit to your bank balance isn't immediate. One of the reasons is because the ocean takes decades to centuries to actually warm up in response to these emissions. So some of our future warming is actually going to be due to emissions that have already taken place. We can't avoid this. But obviously, we can control for future emissions. So why this paper is so important is that it re-evaluates the warming we are committed to from emissions that have already taken place. They found that the generally thought 1.4 degree committed warming is potentially incorrect. Um, and they think this because the modelling that arrives at this 1.4 degree figure is actually based on the assumption that future warming will follow a similar pattern to past warming. But these scientists are saying that when the Southern Ocean does actually warm up, this is going to burn off clouds that are always in that area, allowing warming to be amplified. So hitting a tipping point, basically. They believe that future warming is underestimated because this isn't accounted for. So when they factor this into the process, they think that we're actually committed to 2.5 degrees warming from emissions that have already occurred. Um, so that might sound pretty horrific, but these scientists are urging us that this should not be, you know, game over, but we need to take it as a harsh reality check and a bit of a boot up the butt. Um, as they've said, warming can be a slow process, so it could still take us centuries to reach this 2.5 degrees. But if we continue to emit greenhouse gases at the rate we're going at the moment, it's going to speed up that process. So as we've said, as many of our previous guests have said on the podcast, what we do in the next five to 10 years is super important and it could actually affect life on Earth for the next few thousand years and beyond. So again, this is just another reason to use your voice, take action now, do all that you can. The next few years are absolutely critical. So if you want to know more about that, there's also a lot of really well-written books out there. And there's actually one that I'm currently reading titled The New Climate War by Michael Mann. Uh, I think it was published this this year. If not, it's a year old. Um, and funny enough, and Emma did have to put up with, with me a little bit as I 
scrambled through the book to look for where I read this, but there's a particular paragraph that really sums up in terms of not needing to be overwhelmed and feel like we've got to give up on everything to fix the problem. And I'm going to read this particular paragraph. Don't need to add anything to it because it just pretty much sums it up. So here goes. We should all engage in climate-friendly individual actions. They make us feel better and they set a good example for others. But don't become complacent, thinking that your duty is done when you recycle your bottles or ride your bike to work. We cannot solve this problem without deep systematic change and that necessitates governmental action. In turn, that requires using our voices, demanding change, supporting climate-focused organizations, and voting for and supporting politicians who will back climate-friendly policies, which includes putting a price on pollution. And that's it. So let's wrap up this express app. That's exactly what it is. Um, so remember to please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app, and where possible, leave us a positive rating, because that really does help us get more exposure and um, if you're enjoying our podcast and find our website content useful please do consider supporting our work by buying us a coffee Uh, every little bit of contribution helps the bare minimum just keeping our podcast going our website and hopefully it will enable us to do a little bit more in the near future absolutely and keep sending in those questions we love to answer them for you Um, so we'll keep on doing that in podcast to come so everyone happy earth day happy earth day ben i hope you can get out in nature and have a nice trail run and enjoy yourself i absolutely will and uh i believe you have already gone away um and on that note just one small apology to our listeners audio quality uh on emma's behalf is not perfect because as i've just said she has gone away and um yeah reception's been a bit patchy but hey the benefit of being out and about, uh, That's it. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll all be forgiving. All right, brilliant. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 